This morning we're going to talk about using our, our talents and our, our gifts. Whether you realize it or not, every follower of Christ, when you are indwelled by the Holy Spirit, which is a gift of God in itself, you are given at least one, if not more, spiritual gifts. And our spiritual gifts are part of the focus of the passage we're going to read this morning. It's an unusual scenario where there's this woman who's mentioned in Acts chapter 9, and it's the only time she shows up in the Bible. And part of my question is, what is it about her that caused her story to be recorded in the Bible so that here, 2,000 years later, we're still talking about this one woman based on the way she served. Her name is Dorcas. Acts 9, verse 36, in Joppa, there was a disciple named Tabitha. In Greek, her name is Dorcas. She was always doing good and helping the poor. About that time, she became sick and died, and her body was washed and placed in an upstairs room. Lydda was near Joppa. So when the disciples learned that Peter was in Lydda, they, said, they sent two men to him and urged him, please come at once. Peter went with them, and when he arrived, he was taken upstairs to the room. All the widows stood around him crying and showing him the robes and other clothing that Dorcas had made while she was still with them. Peter sent them all out of the room. Then he got down on his knees and prayed. Turning toward the dead woman, he said, Tabitha, get up. She opened her eyes, and seeing Peter, she sat up. He took her by the hand and helped her to her feet. Then he called for the believers, especially the widows, and presented her to them alive. All this became known all over Joppa, and many people believed in the Lord. Peter stayed for some time with a tanner named Simon. And then one verse that Peter wrote later in 1 Peter chapter 4. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. Pray with me for just a moment. Lord God, I pray that you'd give us understanding into this scenario from the Acts of the Apostles and into this whole realm of how we serve through our gifts and talents and abilities. I pray that you'd make this clear, but also that you would do this in a way that allows us to understand a little bit more of who we are, of what you want from us, of, of how we contribute together to something that is bigger than any of us, bigger than all of us. Well, thank you for allowing us to gather in this place together, to sing songs of worship from the heart, to lift our prayers to you, to laugh together at the, the humor of uh, Todd's announcements or greetings or the responses that come from the rest of the congregation here this morning and just to enjoy the process together of learning more about Jesus, of learning what it means to be his follower, of discovering truths. And I pray that you would not only give us a, a warmth that causes us to laugh, but give us a warmth that allows us to do life together and to enjoy this journey that we are on. Lord, thank you for being the God who forgives our sins, for being the God who gives us a vision of how we can make an impact here in this world. Thank you for being the God who gathers people together in communities where at one point we didn't know each other and now we regard each other as family. Thank you for all of these wonders. In Jesus' name, amen. Just about a year ago, I had the opportunity to speak at a memorial service for a man who was one of the early members of North River named Larry Wagner. I don't think there are a whole lot of people around here anymore that remember Larry, but he was one of the original ten people who founded North River Church. 
There was Sue and me and, and 10 of our friends, and Larry gave us 10 years here at North River, and then he and his wife, Connie, who was our first music director, went back to the church where we had originally met. Half of that original 10 are still here and involved at North River nearly 33 years later. But Larry was the first one of us to pass on to his eternal reward. For the last several years of Larry's life, he struggled with Parkinson's disease. It stripped him of his immobility. And little by little, it was taking away his ability to communicate with others. When he died, Connie asked me if I would speak first at his memorial and tell people who Larry was years ago, realizing that some of his own grandchildren only knew him in the years when he was impacted by Parkinson's. Part of what I shared that day is that Larry was one of the first four people who signed on as part of the steering team that launched our church. In a sense, Larry made that commitment before I had officially made that commitment, whether I was all in in terms of launching North River and, and beginning to plant a brand new church together. Larry told me that day, if you decide to launch a new church, we'll be there to help you. Within a few weeks of that conversation, our, our little band of 10 began meeting and praying and planning. We met two nights a week for about six or eight weeks, and Larry was a part of that steering team. And then Larry became one of our first overseers here at North River. He helped build walls, paint rooms. He was the first sound engineer who worked in our makeshift sound booth. I told a few of these stories to the congregation that gathered for that memorial. And as I was thinking about his grandchildren and how they would remember him, it hit me that Larry was part of so many things that we did in those first 10 years. But he never led anything. He was never the chairperson for our board. He never led a ministry team. He was never the out front leader of anything that we did. He was never very vocal, and he wasn't the first one to speak, usually the last. But we always wanted Larry to be a part of every important ministry because of something that I called the Larry factor. When he was part of the group, he just made things work better. I don't know about you, but I love people like that, where they can figure out solutions to small problems, or they, they see the one little thing that nobody else saw that makes an idea really come together and gel. The inside secret of new church development is while the founding pastor tends to get a lion's share of the credit and sometimes the blame for those early years, new churches sink or swim based on faithful, dedicated volunteers like Larry, and like those others who are part of that first very small dedicated team. North River never would have gotten off the ground and never would have survived to become the church that we are today without a tremendously dedicated team of volunteers. People like Larry and Connie Wagner, Tim and Janet Ells, Mary Ellen Connor, Jerry and Marge Kamen, and my wife Sue. I bring this up today because there's a person who is only mentioned in one snapshot of the New Testament in the book of the Acts of the Apostles. Her name is Dorcas, or Tabitha was her Aramaic name. She was the person who had what I would call the Larry Factor in a new small church where Peter the Apostle was visiting. In this next part of our All In series, we're going to look at why her story shows up in the Bible and we're going to ask why God chose to display his miraculous power in a very unique way in her life. At least we're going to ask about that and come to the best conclusion we can reach. 
This all-in series is really about the stewardship of life. So far, we've looked at the stewardship of life opportunities, principles of financial stewardship, and then last week we looked at vocational stewardship or our stewardship of work. Today, in part four of this series, we're talking about the stewardship of our spiritual gifts and talents. And this message is called, Using Our Gifts and Talents. So welcome back to North River here this morning. I am so glad that you're here. May God's full and richest blessings fall on all of us who are here at our North River campus today and those of you who are with us online as well. I want to extend a a warm greeting to those of you who are online. You're an important part of all of this and uh, we want to help you become fully a part of North River regardless of where you are and where you're watching from. So help us out by connecting with us in some way. As Todd mentioned a few minutes ago, you can text the word hello to this number if it didn't, you didn't see it earlier, 781-227-8765. We'll begin a, a, a texting conversation with you. You can go to our website, northriverchurch.org. Click at the top, I'm new, and that will lead you to uh, an online connection card that you can fill out. We'll use whatever you give us to continue that conversation with you. Or if you're here in the room, you can go out to the Welcome Center and ask for a connection card, and you can fill that out physically. If all those fail, send me an email, paul at northriverchurch.org, and I'd love to hear from you. During this series, we're asking one question every week. What does it mean for us to be all in for Jesus? Now, the truth is, I could fill up about a year worth of of topics that, that fit this particular series, and we're not going to do that. But part of what we're looking at today is What Dorcas teaches us about using our gifts and talents, here's this one woman who shows up in one passage of the Bible, and her name is preserved for all time. What was it about her, and what can we learn from her? What does it mean to be all in for Jesus with our gifts and our talents? And is there any evidence that our gifts, our talents, and uh, our abilities really matter to God? Or should we just kind of hold off and let somebody else do all those things? One of the questions that we wonder about is, if I give up on serving, won't somebody just simply take my place so that it doesn't really matter if I get involved? I think Dorcas answers a bunch of these questions. Three insights and then a follow-up point that I'm going to make this morning. Here's the first insight. She was an all-in servant of the local church. I think one of the reasons why she appears here in the Bible and her name is memorialized is she was an all-in servant of the local church. Verse 36 says, in Joppa, there was a disciple. Notice that word disciple. It's the first time that the concept of a disciple is specifically tied to a woman. Sometimes people think, Paul, are you stretching all these things? Weren't there men who were the disciples? They were the first elders of the church. Here the Bible tells us very specifically that Tabitha, Dorcas, was known as a disciple of Jesus. There was a disciple named Tabitha in Greek. Her name is Dorcas. She was always doing good and helping the poor. So the Acts of the Apostles traces the spreading of the gospel through the apostles. The earliest chapters of this book focus on Peter and John and the first church in Jerusalem. Chapter 8 then traces the evangelistic ministry of Philip, who was kind of a wandering, traveling evangelist. Most of chapter 9 deals with the spiritual conversion of a person named Saul of Tarsus who moves from being the persecutor of early Christians to becoming one of their leaders. And then the back half of chapter 9, chapter 10, 11, and 12 all return to the ministry of Peter. And here we find Peter and his encounter with this woman named Dorcas. 
Dorcas is the only person mentioned from a Christian group in the Israeli city of Joppa. She was known by two names, Tabitha, which was her name in Aramaic, which was the street language that was multicultural of that time, and Dorcas in, in Greek, both words mean gazelle. I, I get the sense that this is a nickname rather than her physical name, her birth name. Why would they call her gazelle? I think she was always running around doing something good, that people were amazed by her energy. They're amazed because here she is over here doing this for one group of people, and then the next day she's over here doing something for another group of people. Somebody nicknamed her along the way. That woman's like a gazelle. Look at how she leaps from one task to another, and she's just the energizer bunny. That's, that's the picture that I have when you understand what's behind that name. Literally, she was always doing something good. The phrase that's written there probably is better translated, she was full of good works, and she was always helping the poor. Later on, we'll discover that she was a seamstress who made clothes and robes for others. I find this fascinating. Tabitha, or Dorcas, doesn't make it into the Bible because of her leadership gifts. She doesn't make it into the timeless truths of Scripture because of her preaching or teaching. Her name is recorded forever in the Scriptures because she served the poor by making robes and handmade clothing for people who were poor and couldn't afford what they truly needed. That's awesome. When Peter comes to Joppa, the widows of the town all wanted to show Peter the robes and the clothing that Dorcas had made for them. So again, I think Dorcas had what I stumbled into a year ago, the Larry factor. She never led a team. She wasn't an overseer or a deacon or a pastor. But she is the one person among the Christians in this city of Joppa who makes it into the Bible's pages because of her talents as a seamstress and her gift of service to others and the way that it was impacting the ministry of the local gathering of Christians it appears that the gathering of Christians in this city wasn't even big enough that it was called a church yet, and she was impacting them greatly. Don't ever doubt that your spiritual gift or that your talent can matter to God or that it can make a difference in the local church community. The inclusion of Dorcas's talent with a sewing needle in Acts chapter 9 tells us that God notices all the little things that you and I are prompted to do as we serve God among his people. Here's my second insight into this account of Dorcas. Her talent mattered so much that Peter gets pulled away from a revival. <laughs> Think of that. Verse 32 says, as Peter traveled around the country, he went to visit the Lord's people who lived in Lydda or Lydda. I'm not sure how we say that name exactly. There he found a man named Aeneas who was paralyzed and had been bedridden for eight years. Aeneas, Peter said, Jesus Christ heals you. Get up and roll up, roll up your mat. Immediately Aeneas got up. All those who lived in Lydda and Sharon saw him and turned toward the Lord. This is the passage just prior to the one that we're focusing on this morning. At this point in the Acts of the Apostles, Peter is extremely prominent in the story of the movement of the gospel mission that Luke, the writer of Acts, is unfolding for us. Remember, Peter was the vocal leader of the original disciples. He'd been the first one to claim that Jesus was the Messiah, the Son of the living God, and Jesus praised him for that. Along with John, he'd been the first to go inside the empty tomb on that first Easter Sunday morning. 
He had been personally restored to Jesus, but to ministry by Jesus, even after denying that he knew Jesus three times on the night that Jesus went through his trial on the way to the cross. And so he'd been through the shame of that kind of humiliation and, and failure, but he knew what it was to be given another chance by the Lord. And Peter had been the main preacher on Pentecost Sunday, the day when 3,000 people in Jerusalem, mostly Jews, and an international gathering of Jews from around the world, heard the good news for the first time, believed that Jesus really was the Messiah, and then were baptized on the same day. Now we learn that Peter had been traveling around. He was encouraging small groups of Christians throughout Israel. They were, they were still staying within Judea and Samaria and the broader uh, provinces of Israel. And at this point, he's in this small town known as Lydda, which if you were to pull out a map and find one that actually has Lydda on it, it was a Jewish city near Joppa, and Joppa was on the Mediterranean Sea. Today, Lydda is known by its Arabic name, Lod, and it has a mixed population with about 30% Palestinian people and 70% Israelis. It's about 10 miles east of the Mediterranean Sea. That detail will come into play in a, in a moment. Peter healed many people around the region, and this occurs at Lydda as well. And so we're told that just prior to, prior to the Dorcas scenario, he meets a man named Aeneas, and we discover that Aeneas had been paralyzed for eight years. We don't know what led up to this encounter, but Peter is recorded as telling him, Jesus Christ heals you, get up and roll up your mat, and the man did it. This seems straight out of the Gospels, like one of the scenarios he'd seen Jesus do in a, in a few other situations with other people. We, we don't know if the man was asking for help, if he was begging to survive, or if Peter just saw him and realized the need. We are just thrown into the middle of this conversation. And then the result unfolds. It says that a lot of people in Lydda and the plain of Sharon turned to the Lord. The healing had sparked an evangelistic awakening of people turning to faith in Jesus. No doubt, they saw what happened or they heard what happened. They'd known this man who had not been able to walk. He'd been paralyzed for eight years. And people's memories went back to the stories of Jesus, healing people on the streets, even a paralyzed man. Think of the man where his friends tore the roof off the house in order to lower him into the presence of Jesus. And Jesus healed that paralyzed man on the spot. And they begin connecting the dots. Wow. Peter, one of Jesus' followers, is now doing the same things that we heard that were happening when Jesus was walking around Israel. About this time, in Joppa, this woman named Dorcas suddenly died. Grieving Christians in nearby Joppa sent for Peter when they heard that he was in, uh, in, the, in the next town over. Evidently, Dorcas' reputation was so well known that Peter got pulled out of this revival. Can you imagine that? It's like saying in the midst of a Billy Graham or a Luis Palau revival where there are thousands of people responding, all of a sudden they pull the main speaker out to go to this one small town because this person's service was so valued by the people of that community. Can you imagine the desperation that must have been in that plea, the persuasiveness that they must have used, and how much they loved this woman for the way that she had served in their midst. 
That leads to the third insight. Her gifts and talents were her legacy. We jump ahead to verse 40. Peter is brought to that small town. They take him to the upper room where she was lying. It says, Peter sent them all out of the room, and then he got down on his knees and prayed. He didn't do anything spooky. He didn't do anything weird. He just prayed. Turning toward the dead woman, he said, Tabitha, get up. She opened her eyes, and seeing Peter, she sat up. So, let's break this down a little bit. When Peter arrived, they took him upstairs to this room where Dorcas had been laid out. She'd been washed and prepared for burial. A group of widows was in the room there. And the prior verse says that they were crying and they stood around Peter and they're showing Peter the robes and the clothing that she had made for them. And they can't believe that she's gone. How do we know that she was really dead? Well, we we can't go back and put ourselves in the room. We, We can't test tube this thing. But here's the report that we have. Verse 37 says that she became sick and died. And then her body was washed, meaning that her body was prepared for burial. This is when the undertakers come, and they they do whatever, whatever was appropriate for that time. And then her body was taken upstairs and placed in a quiet room. And they sent two men to find Peter in Lydda, which was 10 miles away from Joppa. That means they had to walk 10 miles there, walk 10 miles back, bringing Peter with them. I don't know if Peter had to finish his sermon or finish dinner or whatever he was doing when they first found him, but that takes time. How fast can you walk 20 miles? Think about it. Bare minimum, by my calculation, if Peter and these guys were really fit, this was going to take them somewhere five to six hours minimum. Think of... uh, when people run the Boston Marathon, the world-class people are just around two hours. The average people are somewhere three hours to four hours. And then there are some that are straggling in, and they're running, get you, five, six, sometimes seven hours. And every once in a while, there are a couple of people that come in after dark, after they've closed everything else down, and they're still chugging it out. How fast can you walk 20 miles? I, I simply raise all that to say This was not something where there was a momentary fluctuation of her heartbeat and she looked like she was gone and she turned pale and 15 minutes later she comes back to life. There's a significant period of time here and we can't quite calculate exactly how long it was. But at a bare minimum, I'm guessing that there were six hours that passed from the time that she died, that her body is washed and prepared for burial and where Peter makes it back and probably... It was a bit more than that. Folks, she was dead. She she was dead, and they were getting ready to bury her by the time that Peter showed up. Now, this is surprising for us to hear in our age. We don't hear stuff like this every day. We hear of medical moments. My mom was a cardiac nurse. I grew up with stories every night at the dinner table of how somebody got shocked after their heartbeat stopped, and they were brought back to a restored heartbeat. But you know what? Even though sometimes people in casual language say they died and then they were brought back, that's not the way medical people actually talk about that. Her heartbeat stopped. It was, it was shocked back into its appropriate rhythm. And five minutes later, everything is, is back to normal. When there's six hours, eight hours, ten hours, something like that, this is a different reality. So we shouldn't be surprised after the resurrection of Jesus that there were resurrections after the resurrection 
that are talked about in the Scriptures. Why, why should we not be surprised about that? One of the promises of Jesus is that one day, all of those who put their faith and trust in Him will take part in the great resurrection at the end of time as we know it and be united with the Lord. If you believe anything about Jesus, we've got to believe that too. Otherwise, it's all suspect. Jesus promised something that's part of the great hope of Christians, that when we die, we don't just die and go into the ground and become dirt. But there is a point at which even those who are already dead in the ground are raised up with a resurrection body that will be like His, a body that survived death and, and that's new. I just hope that I get the body that I had at 22 rather than the body I have at, 30, at 63. You know, that would be a wonderful thing, but I'm not sure we get to choose that. But regardless of what kind of bodies we have, they'll be designed for eternity. And we'll know each other, and we'll see each other. So we shouldn't be completely shocked. Matthew 27 tells us that after Jesus died, there was an earthquake. This is before the resurrection. And it caused tombs to open. And there were people who had died and been buried who were resurrected in that moment, and they went around talking to people. Now, there are different gospel interpreters, some who say this happened in those three days between the death of Jesus on Good Friday and on that third morning when He was raised to newness of life. Some others say, we think that the gospel is, is kind of condensing all this and that happened after the resurrection. I don't know. I wasn't there. But it says it happened and sometimes we skip that stuff because we can't explain it. And there were people who had died and, and who'd been buried and resurrected like Lazarus a week before Jesus' resurrection. Remember, how many days was Lazarus in the tomb? How many do you remember? Four days. Four days, so much so that when Jesus went near the tomb, people said, Jesus, do you know what you're doing? His body stinks. In other words, he's been decaying already. And it says that Jesus wept. He was full of emotion for his friend. And he simply called, Lazarus, come out. And one of the reasons that people were terrified of Jesus during that week that started off with Palm Sunday and then led into all of the teaching that he did was because this story of Lazarus, who lived only six miles away from Jerusalem, was reverberating around the city of Jerusalem. And then we have this account in Acts chapter 9, and the only adult woman who was ever recorded in the Bible who was raised from the dead, Dorcas. Part of the purpose of Jesus' resurrection is that gives us hope that we will one day live eternally even though we die. So it seems fitting that close after Jesus' resurrection that this power would again be demonstrated in real life. The only reason we are given for why God's power was unleashed through the prayer of Peter in this situation seems to be the way that she used her spiritual gifts and her talents and her abilities to bless the local church community. Wow. She stewarded those gifts and talents to the fullest. And when the Lord heard Peter's prayer, that's all he did was get down on his knees and pray. God's power was set loose. I don't know that God will ever do that again with somebody else, but what it tells me is that the gifts and the talents and the way that this woman served in the local church had the eye of God. 
and moved the heart of God and that it mattered greatly. Here's our big idea for this morning. All-in Christians, that's what we're talking about. Christians who are all-in for Jesus view their gifts and talents as tools designed to bless others and glorify God. They weren't there just for her to feel important. They weren't there for her to feel like, oh, I understand myself. They were there for her to serve other people. And she did it so well that her friends and neighbors rushed 10 miles away to pull Peter out of a revival. Peter left the revival, comes to the room where this woman is lying. He gets on his knees and prays, and the power of God is unleashed in such a way that she is brought back from the dead and serves some more. Now, we're not told about it, but eventually Dorcas died, and she died the way that we will all die. But what a moment right here in the middle of her life. I think that this example leads us to take a self-assessment. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 includes these two verses, part of verse 4 and 7. There are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit distributes them. Now to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. Do you have a spiritual gift? Do you know what it is? If you are a believer in Christ, you have at least one. We've seen several on display here in this room this morning. Uh, there are some who are serving using their technical abilities, either in camera work or uh, in the booth behind us. We, we had people with instrumental gifts and abilities, skills, who were leading worship and playing instruments just a few moments ago. And all of those people are offering that talent to God. Yes, they enjoy playing or singing, but it's really about leading worship with all of us and discovering, I think this is the way that God wired me to impact the church. You heard Todd get up here and, and use his administrative gifts and his leadership gifts. Todd loves talking about vision. And it's a great thing, and it fits his role as executive pastor. I was joking with him uh, when you were all greeting each other. I said, you know, Christy and I were saying, we love announcements, Todd. Announcement Todd is fun. He comes alive. But then I said, Todd, I think it's really vision, Todd. You come more alive when you talk about vision than anything else you do. It's wonderful to see. My top gift is teaching and preaching and, and leadership, and you're seeing that on display now. Do we view our spiritual gifts and talents as gifts from the Lord to be used for the benefit of others? How we view them impacts the way that we use them. Dorcas used her talent to bless other people in a way that made her seem indispensable to that very small church community that's only mentioned one time in the Bible. God the Holy Spirit blesses every Christ follower with at least one spiritual gift. Here's at least a partial list of, of the spiritual gifts. There's teaching, faith, leadership, administration, knowledge of, of Scripture and the way things work, prophecy, counseling, discernment, encouragement, shepherding. That, that's borrowing a term from the, the world of shepherding sheep to how we guide people and help them grow and get to where they need to go. Wisdom, apostleship, evangelism, giving helps, craftsmanship, healing, mercy, miracles. Peter had that on display that day. Interpretation and tongues. I don't know if you knew it, but we have a spiritual gifts assessment tool on our North River Church website. If you don't know what your spiritual gift is, I'd really encourage you to go to our website. You can go to, to northriverchurch.org 
Look for connect and then serve, and then under serve, there'll be something that says spiritual gifts. And it'll lead you to this assessment tool that you could walk through, and it will help guide you closer to understanding what your dominant spiritual gift may be. If you're a longtime believer and you think you know what your spiritual gifts are, but you'd like to have it confirmed, it'd be worth an hour for you to invest in all of that. Are you looking for a way to use your spiritual gift or your talents? Here are just a couple of ways. Todd made mention that uh, Pastor Amy, uh, as of Wednesday morning, last time I talked with her, she needed two more uh, group leaders to help with vacation uh, Bible experience this coming week, and she can always use more help because it sounds like there was a a last-minute surge of more children, which is wonderful. Maybe what you can do is just become a part of the team. If you have two mornings to offer, and that's all you have. You can't come all five, but you could give two. You could learn and kind of intern with somebody, and next year you're ready to roll when we do this again. Uh, Here's another thought. After 11 years of envisioning and then leading the God's Garden team, our own Steve Haig is looking for someone to take the baton for him in order to lead the God's Garden effort. Now think of this, Todd, uh, uh, Steve and his wife Pat had this original vision of creating an organic garden which we have out here just past the parking lot this way and the garden has produced more than 10,000 pounds of vegetables that we've given away to food pantries and to people in need over the last 11 years. That's an amazing thing. And there are several other people who have helped Steve and Pat in that venture, several of you who are here. But Steve came to us recently and he said, I've been doing this for 11 years. I'm tired. It's time for somebody else to take the baton. So I'm just wondering if somebody else have a vision. Do you love to garden? Do you like getting fresh, good food in other people's hands? Talk to Todd. He'd love to talk with you about all of this. Is this a talent? Is it a skill? Is it a spiritual gift? I don't know. It probably takes a combination of all those things. Let me close with this. Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 4, Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. I wonder if he was thinking back about the time that he met Dorcas when he wrote this letter. If you speak, you should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If you serve, you should do so with the strength that God provides so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. All in Christians view their gifts and talents as tools designed to bless and glorify, bless others and glorify God. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for sending Peter to Dorcas on that day. Thank you for giving us a window of understanding just how much her serving and her skill impacted that one small local church. Thank you for reminding us that the things that you've wired us up to do, knowing that we are uniquely made and designed by you, matter to the big picture of what you're doing. And I pray that you will use all of our gifts and talents, renew our energy for them as we take in this reminder, And use them to fulfill what your dream is for us here at North River and throughout the time of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.